Chapter 13 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13 Although during the first years of his married life, Oscar Wilde's difficulties were often very great, not on one single occasion in the whole of his life, even in the starveling years after his release from prison, did he obtain or attempt to obtain resources by any means unworthy of proper pride, of self-respect, of delicacy. He loved money for the pleasures that it commands, but he did not love it enough to let it soil his lordly hands. In this respect his pride reached to arrogance, in money matters he was the soul of honour, another point in his character which in a commercial country and amongst the bohemians of arts and letters would win little recognition. His generosity was unbounded. I have no sense of property, he used to say. But he did not add that for the property of others he had a respect as stern as to his own belongings he was totally indifferent. Friends always share, he wrote to a man at Reading who had been good to him. He was praying his acceptance of a sum of money, for the man had lost his employment. This man, just before Oscar Wilde's release, had begged him, knowing that the prisoner was penniless and greatly concerned as to his position, to accept the loan of five pounds which he had saved up. With the most delightful badinage did C-33 refuse the offer. He pretended that to a man of his extravagance such a sum would be useless. All this was so as to refuse without hurting the feelings of his friend a sum of money which to a working man meant much. In the end he said that if things came to the worst, and he did wake up one morning to find himself without a breakfast, he would write for the five pounds and buy a sandwich with it. The man said, And a cigar. I hardly think that it would run to that, said Oscar, but if there is anything over I will buy a postage stamp and write to acknowledge the money. His generosity even was misconstrued. Gifts which had been made by him out of sheer kindness of heart were represented as bribes for nameless purposes. Towards his mother his liberality knew no limits. For years before his fall he maintained her in the affluence which she enjoyed. During the eight years, 1884 to 1891, although the total of his published work was not great, and judged by its quantity alone the man may be considered not to have greatly progressed, his development of those qualities and talents which were his especial distinction was as astounding as it was delightful. Those years were to the people who came into contact with him memorable as a succession of the rarest intellectual banquets. His spendthrift genius kept open house. He spoke, and those who heard him wondered why the whole world was not listening. There never can have been in the world's history a talker more delightful. A great lady said of him to Henri de Regnier that when Oscar Wilde was speaking, it seemed to her that a luminous aureole surrounded his noble head. 
this remark is also repeated and confirmed in the testimony of jean-joseph renaud henri de Reynier, that gentil homme de lettres in the republic of literature the elegant and delicate writer of the daintiest prose in the french language the poet of distinction the novelist of refinement pays in his book of essays figure et caractère a tribute to oscar wilde which for nobility always does compel he made public at a time when to write in praise of him was to court obloquy and foul suspicion writing of the impression which in those days oscar wilde produced in paris he says quote, he pleased he amused he astounded people grew enthusiastic about him people were fanatics where he was concerned End quote. it should be noted that henri de Reynier speaks here of the highest parisian society the milieu in which he himself an elegant man of the world moves he describes the dinner at which the lady referred to above made her memorable pronouncement quote, the dinner elegant and prolonged was held in a luxurious room brilliantly lighted scented violets were banked up on the cloth in the cut crystal glasses champagne sparkled fruits were being peeled with knives of gold monsieur wilde was speaking there had been invited to meet him certain guests who were not talkative and who were disposed to listen to him with pleasure of this conversation and of others i have kept a vivacious and lasting remembrance monsieur wilde spoke in french with an eloquence and a tact which were far from common his expressions were embellished with words which had been most judiciously selected as a scholar of oxford monsieur wilde could as easily have employed latin or greek he loved the greek and roman antiquities his causerie was all purely imaginative he was an incomparable teller of tales he knew thousands of stories which linked themselves one to the other in an endless chain henri de Reynier here remarks what any one who with due attention reads oscar wilde's fairy stories will observe quote, this by telling stories was his way of saying everything of expressing his opinion on every subject it was the figurative hypocrisy of this thought the way in which he veiled his thoughts one might not press monsieur wilde too closely for the meaning of his allegories one had to enjoy their grace and the unexpected turns he gave to his narratives without seeking to raise the veil of this phantasmagoria of the mind which made of his conversation a kind of thousand and one nights as spoken the gold-tipped cigarette went out and lighted itself again incessantly in the lips of the storyteller as his hand moved with a slow gesture the scarabaeus of his ring threw off its green lights the face kept changing its expression with the most amusing mimicry the voice flowed on unceasingly dragging a little always equal monsieur wilde was persuasive and astonishing he excelled in giving a certificate of truth to what was improbable the most doubtful statement when uttered by him assumed for the moment the aspect of indisputable truth 
of fable he made a thing which had happened actually from a thing which had actually happened he drew out a fable he listened to the scheherazade that was prompting him from within and seemed himself first of all to be amazed at his strange and fabulous inventions this particular gift made of monsieur wilde's conversation something very distinct amongst contemporary causeries it did not for instance resemble the profound and precise ingenuity of monsieur stephane mallarme which explained facts and things in a manner so delicate and exact it had nothing of the varied anecdotic talk of monsieur alphonse daudet with his striking aperçu on men and things nor did it resemble in any way the paradoxical beauty of the sayings of monsieur paul adam or the biting acridity of monsieur henri beck monsieur wilde used to tell his stories like villiers de la isle adam told them monsieur wilde charmed and amused and he gave one the impression that he was a happy man at ease in life End quote. this is the impression of oscar wilde as recorded by a man of letters who is also a man of the world member of the best and most refined society in paris we're able to give in contrast another picture of wilde in paris as a calcier by another man of letters of high distinction monsieur jean joseph renaud whose testimony should be of special value in england jean joseph renaud is one of the finest athletes in france there is nothing morbid nor decadent nor pessimistic about him he can box both in the english and the french styles he is a sportsman in every sense of the word and he has the distinction of being the best gentleman fencer in france he is well known amongst english swordsmen and has given them cause to remember him those who witnessed his performances at the tournament at the crystal palace a year or two ago will be able to confirm the statement that there is nothing morbid nor effete about jean joseph renaud and that what he says about wilde is sincere and from the heart the following true account of his first meeting with oscar wilde and of the effect which he produced upon the company in that house in paris has been described by a great english novelist who is at the same time our sternest literary critic as masterly in its truthful representation of the man described it shows us wilde wishing at any cost to quote, amaze and having failed in his first manner readily adopting another mode in which he triumphed carrying all before him the passage is from the preface to monsieur jean joseph renaud's excellent translation of intentions renaud was a mere lad when he first met wilde at the house of some of mrs wilde's relations in paris this is what he writes quote, when an hour late mr wilde entered the drawing-room we saw a tall gentleman who was too stout who was clean-shaven and who differed from any autoil bookmaker by clothes in better taste than a bookmaker wears by a voice which was exquisitely musical and by the pure blue light almost like that of a child's eyes which shone in his look in his bulky cravat of greenish silk an amethyst sparkled with a subdued light his grey gloves which were so fine as to be almost transparent 
moulded his graceful hands. An orchid was shriveling itself up in his buttonhole. Without listening to the names of the people who were introduced to him, he sat down, and with an air of exhaustion begged Madame Lloyd to order the shutters of the dining-room to be closed and candles to be lighted. He said that he could not possibly stand the light of day. The table decorations had to be altered, because the mauve flowers would have brought him bad luck. Then, as soon as the hors d'oeuvres had been served, he took definite possession of the conversation. What a disappointment awaited us. He spoke, quote, pretentiously, asked questions, and did not wait for the replies, or addressed himself to people with too great directness. You have never seen a ghost? No. Oh, now you, madam. Yes, you, madam. Your eyes seem to have contemplated ghosts. Then he declared that one night in a bar each table was put in its place, and the floor was swept, not by waiters, but by the angels of the close of the day. His British accent reminded us of Sarah Bernhardt. He next began to tell us, speaking almost in whispers, as though he were telling us secrets, and using mysterious phrases, some poetical and simple tales about a young fisherman who pretends every night as he returns from the sea to have seen sirens. One day he really does see a siren, but when he comes home he doesn't say so. About a sculptor who with the bronze of a statue of pain which lives forever, moulds the statue of pleasure which lasts but for one moment. Next he returned to what was macabre, and described at length the sensations which a visit to the morgue in the different capitals of the world procures to a man. We found in Monsieur Wilde the hoaxing cynicism of Baudelaire and Villiers de la Isle Adam as it appeared through an English medium. Already that fashion of amazing people seemed much out of date, and to this audience of intelligent bourgeois it was successful only in the bad sense of the word. The poet noticed this. He kept silent during the rest of the meal. But later on in the drawing-room, while coffee was being served, the conversation having turned on the success of a French comedy in England and Germany, he gently suggested that our prodigious theatrical instinct explains many of our acts, French foreign politics, for instance, are theatrical. They aim rather at the finest attitude, the most striking phrases, the most effective gestures, than at any practical successes. He then examined our history at length, from Charles X up to modern times, from a paradoxical point of view. His conversation transformed itself. He displayed extraordinary knowledge and wit, Men, deeds, treaties, wars passed under review with appreciations, unsuspected, amusing, exact. He made them glitter under the light of his words, even as a jeweller awakes new lights in his gems. He then went on to talk about Lady Blessington and Disraeli. To tell us of the pains of love of Lady Blessington, he little by little raised himself to a lofty and intoxicating lyricism. His fine voice hymned, grew tender, rang out like a viol in the midst of the emotional silence. 
this englishman who just before had appeared grotesque reached reached with simplicity ay surpassed the expressive power of the most admirable odes of humanity many of us were moved to tears one had never thought that the words of man could attain to such splendour and this took place in a drawing-room and the man who was speaking never spoke otherwise than as a man speaks in a drawing-room we could understand that a great lady had said of him when he is speaking i see round his head a luminous aureole many parisians who heard him in those days found apt the comparison which an english friend of his writing in the galois had traced between his sayings and the largesse of his wit and the jewels of buckingham at the court of france ces mots so ran the phrase ces répandiens auteur de lieux comme auteur de buckingham à la cour de france se répandiens les bijoux par calcul mal attaché au pourpoint scintillant padrick Colum, the young irish poet to whom his admirers look for such great things describes in one of his poems in a very striking way how treasures for the future are laid up in the minds of men by the words of a teacher Quote, but what avail my teaching slight years hence in rustic speech a phrase as in wild earth a grecian vase End quote. to oscar wilde the talker posterity will owe a great debt his voice was inimitable though in itself an imitation he had robbed sarah bernhardt of her golden voice but he put the larceny to such a use that the crime became an act of social virtue the most wonderful things said in the golden voice of the most wonderful woman that was the conversation of oscar wilde to have heard him speak has made the fortune of innumerable little men there are homunculi triumphing in the drawing-rooms of the two hemispheres who only faintly echo his manner the smallest small change from his royal storehouse has made hundreds appear rich out of the tatters of his imperial mantle which disaster dragged in the mire many writers many speakers have cut for themselves resplendent robes in which they strut their small parades and enjoy their tiny triumphs one constantly sees in modern literature books which bear upon the face of them the proof that the author's whole equipment was that he remembers to have heard oscar wilde speaking one of the most successful books which has appeared in france during the last fifteen years a work which is hailed as an artistic masterpiece and which at the same time is a huge commercial success is just oscar wilde talking Quote, il passa sa vie à ses palais and the irony of the gods sentenced him to the silence of the tomb in the two most fruitful years of his life when his genius had reached its apogee it was in his wonderful conversation that he found an issue for the bubbling energy of his brain for his supreme activity for we have always to remember that oscar wilde was a man of action condemned by the social order of things to inactivity it is probably because jean joseph renaud himself a man of action recognizes this energy in oscar wilde also that he has espoused his cause and his defence with ardour so zealous 
to the man of action absolute inactivity is physically impossible and as he must be doing he will perform antics rather than do nothing many of the apparent buffooneries which in his youth were reproached against oscar wilde were the result merely of a chafing exuberance he sought indeed saner outlets and his misfortune was that circumstances ever barred the way it is a fact that at one time not long after his marriage he was seriously considering the question of presenting himself as a candidate for parliament it is deeply to be regretted that his poverty prevented the realisation of this project in a political career there was no height to which he could not have aspired he had every one of the gifts that would have made of him in diplomacy an ornament and a treasure to the state he would have filled the house of commons with delight he was a born orator this he attributed himself to his nationality speaking of the irish he once said referring to himself in that self-accusing way which was one of the pathetic traits of his character we are too poetical to be poets we are a nation of brilliant failures but we are the greatest talkers since the greeks he had all the compelling power of great orators he could move his audience by the sheer beauty of his tones we have heard renaud's testimony here is another instance when he was lecturing in dublin the audience was not at all sympathetic his opening remark let there be nothing in your houses which was not a joy to the man who made it was received with ironical laughter he immediately went off into a eulogy of ireland and gradually worked his hostile audience into sympathy which reached the culminating point of enthusiasm when he declared in accents which filled many eyes with tears when the heart of a nation is broken it is broken in music it was by his manner of speaking to women and children that he won such undying admirations from them a charming scene is related by an irish poet who was lunching once at oakley street with oscar wilde amongst the guests was a pretty girl who was barely seventeen years old and who had come up to town for her first season when oscar came in the girl exclaimed oh mr wilde where are your curls oh said oscar i never wear them after the season is over but mr wilde your curls are real ones oh no i keep them in a bandbox at home i will put them on and wear them for you the next time you come it was all so prettily said with such kindness and humanity that the girl remembering the encounter and having come to know how other men would have spoken could not help but think of the poor gentleman with grateful tenderness at a dinner given by mr frank harris in honour of the princess of monaco one of our most distinguished novelists who had been estranged from oscar wilde during ten years was introduced to him afresh that night he relates oscar wilde's conversation was of the most extraordinary brilliancy he subjugated us all for my part i found him most delightful and thought with regret of all the pleasure which i had missed during the ten years in which we had avoided each other on the morning after that dinner the princess sent her portrait to oscar wilde 
and on it she had written the words Ouvre art à Oscar Wilde. In prison he seems to have preserved his power of repartee. There are things on record which were there spoken in the watchful whispers of those who are dumb by law and under penalty, and which scintillate with wit. When freedom released his tongue, his friends found that he had never been more brilliant. Ernest Lajeunesse, in an article which reaches that high point of literary excellence, that it may be said of it that it is a tribute to the great man about whom it was written, gives a striking picture of this dying eloquence. Quote, he is haunted with a foreboding of death, which in the end will kill him. He then tells all his stories in one breath. It is the bitter yet dazzling final piece of a display of superhuman fireworks. Those who, at the end of his life, heard him unravel the skin of gold and the jewelled threads, the strong subtleties, the psychic and fantastic inventions with which he proposed to sew and embroider the tapestry of the plays and poems which he was going to write, those who saw him proud and indifferent, affronting extinction and coughing or laughing out his ultimate phrasings, will keep the remembrance of a sight at once tragic and lofty, the sight of a man damned yet impassive, who refuses to perish altogether. End quote. Another picture of Oscar Wilde as a talker, at this time in his life when the voice was so soon to be hushed, is given by one who had known him for years, and who saw him in those last days. It was not a friend. Quote, of course he had his bad moments, moments of depression and sense of loss and defeat, but they were not of long duration. It was part of his pose to luxuriate a little in the details of his tragic circumstances. He harrowed the feelings of many of those whom he came across, words of woe poured from his lips he painted an image of himself destitute abandoned starving even i have heard him use the word after a very good dinner at pilard's as he proceeded he was caught by the pathos of his own words his beautiful voice trembled with emotion his eyes swam with tears and then suddenly by a swift indescribably brilliant whimsical touch a swallow-wing flash on the waters of eloquence, the tone changed and rippled with laughter, bringing with it his audience, relieved, delighted, and bubbling into uncontrollable merriment. He never lost his marvellous gift of talking. After he came out of prison, he talked better than before. Everyone who knew him really before and after his imprisonment is agreed about that. End quote. He had the delightful way of speaking to the poor, to inferiors, as society calls them, which distinguishes gentlemen. Amongst this class he enjoyed great popularity. He is still remembered by them. In a recent letter, a gentleman writes, quote, By a queer coincidence, my cook was once in his service. She has nothing but good to say of him and of his sweet face. End quote one could adduce hundreds of similar testimonies. In Reading Jail, he was the most popular prisoner, not only with the prisoners, but with the warders. At Berneval, Monsieur Sebastian Melmoth was the coqueluche of the village. 
the peasants adored him the village children loved him and the coast guardsmen were melmoth's men to a man he had eminently that quality of ingratiating himself with the humble without sacrificing a tittle of his dignity to which the germans give the name of leutzelig there is no english equivalent for this word affable does not render it the french spoke of him as un homme du he was a kind-hearted gentleman nothing more it is possible that a pathologist would have seen in the extraordinary brilliancy of oscar wilde's talk in its unceasing flow and the apparently inexhaustible resources of wit and knowledge on which he drew the prodromes of the disease of which he died the cause of his death was meningitis which is an inflammation of the brain and it is possible that for many years before this disease killed him it may have existed in a subacute and chronic state which might account for the almost feverish energy of his cerebration but to the ordinary man no saner no serener speaker ever appeared he seemed at all times master of himself it was indeed this perfect maestria of his powers of conversation which so astounded those who approached him when one comes to think of the matter why should not oscar wilde's friends be satisfied that his memory should go down to the after ages as that of one of the most brilliant talkers who ever lived there are men high in humanity's valhalla who left little behind them but the echoes of their voice the greatest philosophers the men who gave new religions to the world didn't write they talked did christ write did mahound write did socrates write if oscar wilde had had the fortune to find amongst his associates a disciple who would have taken the trouble to record his teachings for he was always teaching when he spoke he would have been remembered in the world's history as one of the wisest of philosophers he was the head of a new school of philosophy his philosophy had in its tenets the real secret of human happiness and what grander eulogy can there be for any school than that he was an optimist who understood to the very extremest extent why mankind is prone to pessimism he felt keener than most men the horrors of life the cruelties of the world the desperate sufferings that social injustice inflicts and yet he had found a way to happiness out of all these evil things nobody could listen to him without being benefited his talk was a cry of sursum corda he taught you to know evil and by deriding it to enjoy good what reason was there that he should write at all yet he was always blaming himself for his indolence he had acquired carlyle's table for his study and sometimes sitting at it toying with his pen he used to say i ought to be putting black upon white black upon white those years may have appeared barren to himself who was always self-accusing and those who measure genius by its output may point to his small production when they deny the genius of oscar wilde yet there are many who find that what he did write during that period of his life 
was sufficient to give him a very high place in English literature and amongst the philosophers of the world. These deny that he was in the right when he once said plaintively, I have put my genius into my life. Into my books I have put my talents only. The effect that has been produced by his essay The Soul of Man, which originally appeared in the Fortnightly Review in February 1891, has been described. It brings hope and comfort to thousands of the world's most cruelly disinherited. Who shall say what has been the widespreading and most beneficial influence of that marvellous book, Intentions? Let one testimony be quoted. It is that of a man of the very highest scholarship and learning in England, whose bent has led him specially to study the religions and the philosophical systems of the world. My experience may be interesting, he writes in a letter. Quote, After taking a high degree in classics at Cambridge, and then reading literature and science for mere love of beauty and truth, I happened after about six years of this to come across intentions. This first reading showed me something different from any other writer. I seemed to see the meaning of literature and art as I never had before. In fact, he taught me the secret I had always missed. I said, never man spoke like this man. It was a revelation, more so than when I read Plato. I secured all his books I could, Every friend of mine with any culture or insight seems to have the same experience on reading him. This is really a remarkable fact, and when my first judgment of him, as the best of them all, was always inviting reconsideration in my own mind, as too remarkable to be true, I found others holding the same judgment. I have always had what I don't like to call an infallible taste in art and literature. My friend can say something as to that, but I mention this absurdly egoistic belief simply because at first I had at times a lurking suspicion that my taste must be wrong, because of my estimate of Wilde. But I have never found reason to alter it. End quote. The name of the friend whom the writer quotes as his surety is, indeed, a patent of critical taste in literature, scholarship and art. Intentions, The Soul of Man his fairy stories, The Happy Prince and The House of Pomegranates, it was in these books that his philosophy was expounded. The only other work of importance which he published during this period, that is to say, from the date of his marriage until 1892 when he came to popularity and its dangers, was his novel The Picture of Dorian Gray. This story was written to the order of the proprietors of Lippincott's monthly magazine, an American periodical, which in 1890 was publishing a complete novel by some author of repute as a supplement to the other contents. Oscar Wilde was one of the men who were invited by the editor to contribute a complete tale. When to a literary artist is given an order to produce a work of a certain length in a certain time, the result is rarely, from the point of view of art, a satisfactory one. The book must, from its very nature, smack of artificiality. It is the manufactured article, not the spontaneous creation of art. Oscar Wilde was at that time, when the order reached him, in considerable financial embarrassment, and people who saw him then, 
remembered how delighted he was, poor fellow, with an order, which promised him a welcome emolument. It is not conceivable that under these circumstances he would deliberately write a book of corrupt morals calculated to pervert. He was too anxious to fill the contract with satisfaction to the proprietors of the magazine. It would have been a disaster to him if the editor of Lippincott's had refused the manuscript on the ground that the work was an immoral one, unfit for publication in the pages of a household magazine. This entirely disposes of the absurd charge that in writing Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde set himself the task of producing a corrupt book. There are people who found it so. This was one of the charges which were brought against him at the trial. He defended himself with splendid folly. If he had simply stated the facts, he would have found the defence far more effective with an old Bailey jury. I was poor, he might have said, at the time when I was asked to write that book. If the manuscript had dissatisfied the editor and he had returned it, I could not have enforced payment if the book was an immoral one and I had deliberately written it so. Therefore, it is absurd to say that I wrote it as an immoral book. It is difficult to understand what grounds there are for so qualifying this book. It seems to any man of the world who reads it that the author is almost too emphatic in his homily against vice. He thumps his cushion with such vigour that he really jars upon one's nerves. One wonders what these vices may be which call forth such vigour of denunciation. He reminds one of Calvin, if one could associate Calvin with anything as graceful and delicate. The book might be described as silly, as obviously intended to épater les sautes, for one knows of all the nasty little vices of silly little men, and the contemplation of them certainly does not excite one to any feeling of tragic horror. The whole thing is entirely artificial. It is literature, not life, and that is perhaps the cruelest thing that one says about a work which professes to be a novel. How purely Oscar Wilde in those days looked upon this book, not as the exposition of any particular creed of his, but as an article of commerce produced to order for payment for the middle-class market, is shown by the fact that when he was arranging to issue the book in volume form, and it was pointed out to him that the length of the manuscript didn't reach the tear exacted by the trade for goods of that kind, he willingly supplied sufficient additional matter to make up the required weight. Works of art are not thus produced. The work was a commercial speculation. He wanted money for it and from it, and he was much too level-headed a man to spoil his chances of a financial success by publishing anything which would fatally damn the work. If there be such hideous immorality in the book as certain perceive, Oscar Wilde must have written it unconsciously. His particular mania was decidedly epileptiform, and a characteristic of those maladies is that the sufferers do things being entirely unconscious that they are doing them. In this case, Dorian Gray would be the best documentary evidence of the poor man's irresponsibility for the mad acts which later disfigured his career. The whole pother about Dorian Gray is only an exemplification 
of the saying of the French Augustine, Give me three lines of any man's writing, and I will hang him. The book was not very well received. It was not at the time a commercial success. The reviewers were not enthusiastic. In the Athenaeum for 27th June 1891, we find the following brief notice of this book. Quote, Mr. Oscar Wilde's paradoxes are less wearisome when introduced into the chatter of society than when he rolls them off in the course of his narrative. Some of the conversations in his novel are very smart, and while reading it one has the pleasant feeling, not often to be enjoyed, of being entertained by a person of decided ability. The ideas of the book may have been suggested by Balzac's Peau de Chagrin, and is none the worse for that. So much may be said for the picture of Dorian Gray, but no more except, perhaps, that the author does not appear to be in earnest. For the rest, the book is unmanly, vicious, though not exactly what is called improper, and tedious. End quote. In November of the same year, there appeared the first number of The Bookman, a literary organ which specially appeals to the middle classes, and where books are mainly considered from the bookseller's point of view. The editor, Dr Robertson Nicoll, is a very shrewd man who would have been the last person in the world to allow a book of patent immorality to be noticed in his columns. Yet, not only did he allow it to be reviewed at length, but he entrusted the reviewing of it to no lesser person than Walter Pater, which meant that every lover of literature in the world, almost, would read the review of Dorian Gray. Walter Pater's review is finely written, but it hardly enables one to ascertain what was his true opinion of the book. What he says about its author himself is perhaps more interesting and may be quoted. There is always something of an excellent talker about the writings of Mr Oscar Wilde, and in his hands, as happens so rarely with those who practice it, the form of dialogue is justified by its being really alive. His genial laughter-loving sense of life and its enjoyable intercourse goes far to obviate any crudity that might be in the paradox, with which, as with the bright and shining truth which often underlies it, Mr. Wilde, startling his countrymen, carries on, more perhaps than any other writer, the brilliant critical work of Matthew Arnold. The decay of lying, for instance, is all but unique in its half-humorous yet wholly convinced presentment of certain valuable truths of criticism. Conversational ease, the fluidity of life, Felicitous expression are qualities which have a natural alliance to the successful writing of fiction, and side by side with Mr. Wilde's intentions, so he entitles his critical efforts, comes a novel, certainly original, and affording the reader a fair opportunity of comparing his practice as a creative artist with many a precept he has denounced as critic concerning it. End quote. Lower down, Walter Pater says, quote, A true Epicureanism aims at a complete though harmonious development of a man's entire organism. To lose the moral sense, therefore, for instance, the sense of sin and righteousness, 
as Mr. Wilde's hero, his heroes are bent on doing as speedily as completely as they can, is to lose or lower organism to become less complex, to pass from a higher to a lower degree of development. Dorian himself, though certainly a quite unsuccessful experiment in Epicureanism, in life as a fine art, till his inward spoiling takes visible effect suddenly and in a moment at the end of his story, a beautiful creation. But his story is also a vivid, though carefully considered exposure of the corruption of a soul, with a very plain moral pushed home to the effect that vice and crime make people coarse and ugly. End quote. It is one of the strangest things in literary history that this book should have been indicted as an immoral work willfully written to corrupt the reader. Oscar Wilde was indignant with his critics, and in the Daily Chronicle for 2nd July 1890, and the Scots Observer for 12th July, 2nd August and 16th, he published certain replies to these criticisms. One of his remarks has often been quoted. He said that he did not wish to become a popular novelist. It is far too easy, he said. The Scots Observer, which afterwards became the National Observer, was under the direction of Mr. Henley, who was considered an arbiter of matters of literature. Oscar Wilde had considerable admiration for this man. He is reported to have said, The essays of the Renaissance are my golden book. I never travel without them, but it is the very flower of the decadence. The last trumpet should have sounded at the moment it was written. A man who was present said, But Mr. Wilde, won't you give us time to read them? Oh, for that, said Oscar Wilde, you will have time in either world. After his first meeting with Henley, during which while the editor of the Scots Observer was grim and sardonic and said nothing, while Oscar was exceptionally brilliant, he said, I had to strain every nerve in conversation to equal Henley. Henley afterwards remarked of Wilde, he is the sketch of a great man. Oscar's brilliant endowments had won him many enemies. He was widely envied. But his detractors had the sop of consolation that in the commercial sense of the word, he was not successful. They were able to point to a very great number of writers, journalists and novelists who were making very much larger incomes than Oscar Wilde. This was not difficult, for he was making no income at all. In a commercial country where repute goes by earnings, and talent is estimated by what it produces in actual hard cash, it was an easy matter under these circumstances for Oscar's enemies to deny that he had any talent at all. They did not fail to take advantage of the opportunity. Until the end of 1891, it was the common comment on him that he had advertised himself into notoriety by posturings of various kinds, but that there was really nothing in him, that the public had no use for him, and that but for his wife's income he would have found his social level long since. These statements gave pleasure and solace to the jealous. The time was close at hand when Oscar Wilde was to show them that he understood as well as any man the secret of great popularity, 
and that he could make money with his pen. After the brilliant success of his first play, Lady Windermere's Fan, it was no longer open to people to say that the public would have none of him. It created great heart-burnings in London, much hypertrophy of the gallbladders. Yet if his enemies could only have foreseen to what disaster success was to hurry him, none more eagerly than they would have joined in the frantic applause with which every night his theatre rang. End of chapter 13